Hello, Julian. Hello, Mitch. Hey, did you have for tea tonight? Oh, nice bit of beef. Nice. Do you eat that? Oh, yeah, love it. About chicken? Yep. What about your pet chicken? Not here, yes, sir. Are you crazy? Oh, well, I see what you mean. Really? I wonder why not. Let's get Alex Simmons in to discuss them. Good idea. We got about a hundred yeah. questions, and we then sort of follow a Zen pull through them. And I think yeah. here we're going to start right in the middle, which is this amazing book that you've written. So, uh, because not everyone watches us, some people listen. It's like animals, improving the lives of the creature that we own, eat, and use by Alex Simmons. A heavyweight subject. It's a very heavyweight subject, and I've read it. And good. I was mesmerised from the start. I thought, what I'll do is I'll skim read it. But I didn't. I, I stayed up for stupidly late two nights run because I just couldn't make it work. That's fantastic. Well, thank you uh, very much. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? To, uh, I like to explain what it is got me to the point where I wrote the book in the first place. And as you know, I spent a career in government veterinary service and I was ultimately deputy chief vet. And I spent my entire career working on public health disease control of endemic and exotic diseases and an element of animal welfare and partway through the government funded me to do a degree in animal welfare so I've always had this interest in it and I was also very conscious that as I reached retirement age which was about seven years ago I was keen to try and draw upon what I knew from my work and what I believed in and try and meld that with my interest in wildlife, which I've had since I was a teenager. And so I started to get involved in conservation. So there's one or two bits talk about that in the book, Catching Cranes, for example, which is just down the road from me. And I do a bit of survey work. And I also do a bit of advisory work for RSPB and Natural Trust on animal ethics. And I started to realize there were these huge differences in the way in which we treat animals, depending on the category into which we force them. So we take farmed animals, wildlife, research animals, pets, animals we try to conserve, and we devise an entirely different set of rules for them. Mm. And at the same time, becoming more and more conscious of the way in which we understand animals well now, because the evidence that's coming from behavioural studies, physiological studies, and the work that animal welfare scientists are doing is showing increasingly that the degree of sentience that animals show, that is the ability to suffer, the ability to feel positively or negative, to strive, is increasing. In fact, it's all going one way. There's nobody coming out and saying, well, we've done this bit of work. These animals are much more stupid and much less aware of what they're doing than we ever thought they were in the past. Yeah. It's not going that way. So I thought, well, look, why don't we understand a bit more about this? There were a lot of people who had an interest in animals and the way in which they're kept, particularly if they eat them or they write them or they use them for a variety of different purposes that don't really know an awful lot about what happens to them because a lot of it takes place behind closed doors yep. and... You start to understand, lift the lid of what goes on. You start to realize that there are groups of animals where we protect them very carefully. We inspect them very carefully. We expect people to have 
certain competencies to do things and the equipment they use is highly developed and approved for the purpose. And at the other end of the spectrum, it's a free for all. And yet these animals are all got the same nervous system. They've all got the same capacity to feel, to have fear, possibly even joy, and certainly the capacity to suffer and feel pain. You mentioned a couple of things in your, in your book that bring to that. One it is you make the comment that people would object to wearing fur coats, and yet the same people are quite happy to wear le leather boots. Yes. And so again, you know, what's the difference between a mink and a cow? Well, I don't yeah. think we can keep any highly motivated predator, whether it happens to be a tiger in a zoo or a mink in a farm, these animals just are not suited to long-term close confinement no. in a different way. But going back to the business about leather versus fur, or for that matter, down from a goose, they've all got their price. And again, what I'm looking to do is trying to get people to be aware of that price so that when they make a decision about whether they're going to wear a fur coat or a down jacket, they understand what has happened. Now, I haven't mm. gone into a lot of detail about fur farming. Perhaps I would do if I was writing it again. But the way in which it's done is pretty, pretty horrendous in most cases. You could argue, that actually, that the production of leather from cattle with the byproduct as a byproduct of producing meat or milk is somewhat less abusive, less exploitative, but it's still exploitation. And whilst I, I mean, I still wear leather, I still wear down jackets, I don't wear fur, but I'm conscious that over time, even when it comes to eating meat, I've become less and less comfortable with certain aspects of it. And I was keen that, that people made decisions or had the opportunity to make decisions, which are more granular than perhaps saying, I'm just going to eat anything or I'm not going to eat any animal products. I'm having nothing to do with any animal product at all. And the idea about it is this book provides you with pointers towards, first of all, understanding the framework in which these animals are kept, but also provides you with the opportunity through the references and further reading to understand it a bit better yourself. Okay. So what do you eat then, Alec? Well, I ate beef at lunchtime. I still drink milk or eat cheese, but I've stopped eating salmon. I've stopped okay. eating a farm salmon. I've stopped eating game birds, which I never ate an awful lot of, but I don't eat grouse, pheasant, or partridge. And I increasingly try and avoid the most intensively reared broilers, broiled chickens. And I'm getting increasingly concerned about pork. So I've made this decision about something. And chapter 11 has got my own personal ethical framework in there, which I use as an example, which people could use if they wanted to develop their own, which has got, that's it there. Oh, wow. Julian holding up the page in chapter 11. What does that say there, Julian? Which animal products should I eat? An example of a personal ethical framework. It's considerations on the left-hand side per yep. animal, and yep. decisions on the right-hand side. Very interesting. Actually, I think it, it may well change the way I eat. I must say that I'm already quite attuned to you, Alec, in that I only tend to eat meat that I know where it comes from. Very lucky that we live in the country and we have a lot of farmers, not a small produce yeah. farmers near us. So it's very easy for, for us to do. Le less so if you're a, a struggling single mum in, in central exactly. coin. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I 
very conscious of this. I've been asked this a number of times, what do you do about this? And the convenience of, for example, chicken portions, which mm -hmm. are already skinned, and ready to stew or turn into a curry or whatever else is fantastic because there's no doubt about it. And you compare that with, for example, starting off to make a vegetarian dish, which might contain the same proportion of protein. It's a much, much more labor intensive process to get to. I don't want to be preachy about it, but I'm also keen that people don't go away with what I would describe as completely the wrong impression about the way their meat is produced. I want to ask you particularly about farmed salmon then, if I may, Alec. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And here we've got one of the, one of the best sources of omega fats and high protein, and it's there, easy to cook, yeah. highly nutritious. Yeah. What's wrong with it? Well, there are very few things wrong with it in the way you described it. There's no doubt about that. But the system of farming salmon and perhaps even many other systems of aquaculture, particularly with finfish, revolve around two or three things, particularly where you've got them in open cages in sea locks, for example, as they are in Scotland. And high densities of any animal lend themselves to maintaining the high parasite burdens or disease and also inhibit the normal repertoire of behavior that all species of animals would strive to express if they had the opportunity. Salmon farming really probably is one of the worst examples of that. Mm. It's not entirely true that salmon are completely inhibited from expressing their, their full range of behavior, but clearly it is very different from what it was if they had the opportunity to migrate up rivers, for example, or go out to sea to mature as they would do if they were pre-litic. And then, of course, the disease issue to do with things like furunculosis, sea lice, and a variety of other infections and parasites does cause quite a significant problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, I completely agree with you. And it brings me on to the next point, which you make very clear in your book, that, that you touched on there with the ability to exhibit normal behavior. We, we talk yeah. as vet students, and I know it's very, very close to your heart because you were chair of the University's Federation of Animal Welfare. Yeah. We talk about those five freedoms, don't we? Yes. It's freedom from hunger or thirst, freedom yes. from discomfort, freedom yep. from pain, injury, or disease, freedom yes. to express most normal behavior, and freedom that's from it. fear and distress. Yes, that's exactly it. Now, the key there is the business about having your behavior inhibited. Mm. And the thing that's really interesting about that is that for many years, what people thought was, and it's probably was thought about people for a long time, all you had to do was keep them comfortable, put the food in front of them, and they'd be happy. And if you take a, a sow and do that, it looks, for the most part, that's what you need to do. Take a sow. Give it a food, put it in a trough in front of it, and it eats it. And then it goes to sleep. But then if you can find that animal and don't provide it with an environment in which it got the opportunity to root or perhaps even socialize with other animals, because pigs are highly social animals. Yeah, I'm just going to stop you there for a moment, Alec, because we have quite a few Australian listeners and rooting yes. in Australia is a different thing. So. Right, yes. I did spend some time in Australia. I should remember that, yes. So, so, so uh, I spoke to you in, 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 in among the... Uh, yeah. the, the 
where they, they where they stick their nose into the ground and plant. Uh, and so uh, evidence from a, a variety of different studies showed that the stereotypic behavior that developed in freighted sows was a response to having their normal repertoire of behavior being thwarted. And what was interesting was that for many years, people thought domestication, selective breeding, providing them with a, a comfortable environment and food meant that all of this behavior had just disappeared and been bred out of them. Now, some mm -hmm. work was done by somebody called Stolberg, with scientists, and David Woodcush, who ran the animal welfare course I did in 1991, I think, a long time ago now. And what they did there was take a bunch of sows and mm -hmm. some of their offspring, where they had been bred in captivity in concrete sheds for generation after generation, and slung them into a pen in the middle of the woods in the south side of Edinburgh. And within days, they were building nests. Within days, they were rooting about in the ground and finding tubers and grumps and goodness knows what else. And all of that turned back to what was there before. So on the back of that sort of evidence, and the same thing applies to caged chickens as well, it was ultimately decided that these animals would work. You could do operant conditioning and choice experiments where ultimately you could show that these animals were prepared to work to have a more interesting environment, which ultimately led to government deciding we're not going to allow these animals to be confined in that way. Now, sows are still confined for quite a long period, twice a year when they're going through the last period of gestation and when they're pickle support. But they are much fitter now, but also they're less stressed as a result of having the opportunity to exercise and forage in the ground. And chickens, which are now in the, what are called furnished cages, those that aren't given access to free range, they have got some of the substrates, nest boxes, perch, dust bat, which the older unfurnished, the barren cages never had. And mm -hmm. it's believed that they are better off now. And there are a number of people, especially world farming, for example, disagree with that view. And I'm ambivalent, frankly, and, but I'm also ambivalent about the vast free range flocks where you've got perhaps a thousand in a group on a muddy field where I'm wondering about whether or not that's particularly good welfare either. So yeah. there are some difficulties about all of these things, but I think the ability to express a normal range of behavior, and this applies to all that. Not just yeah. ones we keep food. So racehorses, pet dogs, research animals. And we should be striving to provide an environment in which the normal repertoire of behavior is as far as practical, able to be expressed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you said appropriate measures of normal behavior. Now, you gave an example in your book about chimpanzees being considered a lot more intelligent than gibbons. They did some some reasoning right. and yeah. found that, that you know, no doubt about it, chimpanzees were an order of magnitude more intelligent than gibbons. And then someone stood back and said, well, yeah, but we've asked them for a ground-based problem to solve okay. here, and there are boreal animals, so why don't we do something in, in, in trees? And they did that and found that the gibbons were just as intelligent. It's not making assumptions about what is best for the animal. You know, good livestock 
stop and known these things, what's best for the animals within certain constraints. And they will provide. So it's all yeah. about understanding the environment in which the animal has evolved and then providing yeah. it with an environment which, as far as practical mimics that, people have known this for a long time in respect of when you keep gibbons in zoos, they don't have them just running around the ground because they don't go. So they've got trees and, uh, and branches for them to fling themselves about on. And of course, if you think about that, the idea that you can simply decide that you're going to say, well, okay, this looks like the right thing for this species of animal, it's almost certainly going to fail. You, I, you need to understand it. Very good. Yeah. No, no, that's fine, Alec. I mean, uh, one thing I find fascinating here is that we are all three gentlemen of an older generation. Yep. And so we've grown up with with people not like Richard Attenborough, the great British wildlife character. We've grown up with people, I've forgotten his name now. What was the chap that used to work in Bristol Zoo? Johnny Morris. Johnny Morris. Johnny Morris. And I was a great fat of his when I was a boy. Well, so, yeah, yeah. As, as, well this is why I'm, yep. I've set it up the way I have set it up. So we then had a backlash against anthropomorphism. The work that we're doing now, are we doing this with a new knowledge and a new understanding, more of a, a woke style yeah, rather I think than an anthropomorphized style? Um, yes, but before I answer that, I should tell you the thing about I, I remember most about Johnny Morris, and that was me feeling very distressed when I realized, or oh, my mother had told me that he wasn't really a zookeeper. Yes, yes, he was certainly but but, but then, probably about seven. But then nor was David Attenborough right. a zoologist. Well well no, he wasn't a zoologist. He was actually a collector. A lot oh, of his yes. books in in the cities were written about going around Africa collecting various different animals to stick in zoos. It's quite it's the background he's got. Now, going back to the bit about anthropomorphizing and people's attitudes changing. One of the things that is absolutely clear that the veterinary profession has changed out of all recognition from when mm -hmm. I qualified. I'm just coming to 45 years now. And, you know, so those sort of three generations of vets that come through in that time. And first of all, the profession is highly feminized and that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's a fact. I also think there's a very much more of a different approach to animal exploitation and what they're prepared to accept. And certainly I've worked with a number of younger vets in the last few years, whose attitudes are highly admirable and they're less, I think, inclined to be unquestioning of the current orthodoxy of animal keeping. Therefore, much more likely to question it. And so that's why you get things like the campaigns against brachycephalic dogs, a better chicken commitment, a, the crustacean compassion efforts, and attitudes are changing. Now, what's also interesting is that people's beliefs about what they're prepared to accept in terms of animal use or exploitation don't always translate to their purchasings. They might be horrified no. about it's that and the other, but they'll continue to eat the chicken and they'll continue to eat beef truck. And there's a cognitive distance where they sort of compartmentalize 
this group of values or this group of views against what they continue to eat. And I'll admit it, I, I struggle with my attitude towards cheese whilst being deeply uncomfortable about the excesses of the dairy industry. But then nothing comes without costs, does it? Because you can then say, well, okay, I'm not going to have any cheese anymore. I'm going to have just oat milk. Well, there are huge environmental well, costs for uh, growing I'm not sure that's quite as big as people think it is. But the other thing about it is, have you eaten any vegan cheese? It's awful. It's, 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 and I enjoy cheese, but I've cut that all, apart from the odd bit of cheese, which I do enjoy a nice bit of cheese, some Wensleydale, perhaps. Or nothing like a nice bit of Wensleydale, eh? <laughs> but uh, I've got rid of milk. I, don't, I haven't had milk for about 10 years now. That's interesting. What I got from your book about eating in particular, we'll talk about yeah. the other things in a minute, but about what eating is, as you say, is to be aware of the, of the costs. Yeah involved, be aware of what happens, yes. just know the process, and then you can make an informed decision as to whether you want to eat it or not. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that if someone who knows very little about the process reads this, that then they will make changes. And I'm hoping that those changes they make will benefit the smaller farms that perhaps are able to keep to a higher welfare standard. Yes. And, and I'm very conscious that that does to lend itself to the development of almost two tiers of food production between about three and five percent of broilers, which are reared in a, a lower input, slower growth regime. So that rather than reaching 2.2 kilos by 35 days, they reach three kilos by 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. So therefore that slower growing bird, they're given a lower protein diet and reach a sort of commercial slaughter weight about twice or three times the length of time. That means that the bird itself is substantially more expensive. I'm really talking in between three and four times. You might spend oh, 12 quid on one of those chickens, but it's, it's definitely a better chicken. So when we get back uh, to the struggling family, don't we? And I think actually with a bit of effort, you can identify that much more easily than say, high welfare milk or high welfare cheese because the identity of the beast, if you like, if you're buying an unready chicken is more easily established than it would be by just buying a block of cheese or a couple of pints of milk in a bottle or a cup. So it becomes more difficult. And I think it becomes very difficult when you're eating out. And yeah. I, I worked for the standard day for a while there. It, uh, in the early 2000s. And I remember the work that was being done there was establishing that more than 50% of meals were being eaten outside of the home. So, and when I say out of the home, that doesn't mean sit down at necessarily a restaurant. It could be sandwiches you eat by the market or a sandwich bar or takeaway meals or whatever else it might be. The identity of what you're buying there becomes much, much more difficult to establish. You might get a detailed description of the menu, even down the name of the pig that you're about to eat. But what you don't get is anything which really gives you that confidence that what you're being told is absolutely true. No, I'm not saying restaurateurs are lying, but the more 
further down you are the chain of production, the more steps there are down that chain that you probably want to have to untangle and establish. It's almost like due diligence in the way that yes. food safety yep. is established or the way in which car parts are established as being safe before they're screwed onto it. You get assurances from the people that supplied you with the raw material. And when it comes to food, it becomes very difficult because the identity of it changes every time another part of the process is invoked. Mm. Okay. And we all know that's gone very wrong on occasion, hasn't it, with people eating yes. foods that have allergic components to them? Well, or for that matter, just the authenticity of what you're buying. Everything mm. from Spaghetti rice to lasagna with horse meat. Mm. Yes, which I like. That's well, I'm not sure I've ever had that. I've certainly eaten horses in a number of different countries, but not that I'm aware of in this country. <laughs> not very curious. But... Right. You've talked there a little bit, Alec, about the, the life of the animal. And yes. I want to take us on to another subject here because I spend a lot of time playing in anaesthesia. And one of the key areas for me in anaesthesia is measuring carbon dioxide levels because that gives us a very clear indication as to what's happening with the patient. And the title of my book, of course, is The Capnography Field Guide, which anybody self-respecting person playing in anaesthesia should have a copy of The Capnography Field Guide. And of course, carbon dioxide is a fascinating gas, isn't it? Because with too little carbon dioxide, we stop breathing and we die. With yep. too much carbon dioxide, we stop breathing and die. I wonder if you've got any thoughts about slaughter and ventilation shutdown. Ah, okay. Right. Well, do you want me to deal with slaughter first and then go on to vent ventilation sh shutdown? Certainly, for a long time, uh, pigs have been killed with what has been described as carbon dioxide anesthesia. And it's now becoming increasingly clear that is a inhumane way of killing an animal because of the highly adverse nature of the concentration to have to be presented to the animal. It will cause the animal to be anesthetized and it will be anesthetized as it comes out of the receptacle into which it's lowered into the CO2 receptacle. But in the period of time between it first being exposed to that gas, the animal will be significantly distressed. And people have been looking at alternative gases. As you know, argon is used for, I think, killing chickens in quite large numbers. And that appears to be quite effective. But it doesn't seem to be an alternative to an alternative gas mixture for pigs. So the EU Scientific Committee from EFSA has said that this needs to be replaced and work is going on there. In fact, UFOR was involved in some of that work for a while and an alternative has not been established. So that's not good at all. Really not good. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there are many systems of slaughter of barbed owls, which are argument, there's no doubt about it, but this one most certainly is not. Trying mm -hmm. to uh, ventilation shutdown, this is one of the most difficult decisions that probably when it comes to dealing with disease in farmed animals that a government would have to take. And as you probably know, essentially what it is, you would take a shed full of 
chickens. And rather than using a humane, a known to be humane way of killing the chickens, either with gases, anesthesia, or by using electricity, or perhaps even manual dislocation, or even captive bolts for turkeys and things like that, you would simply close all of the doors, close all of the vents, and these animals would essentially suffocate through lack of oxygen and build up of CO2. It's been used, I understand, quite a lot in the US because, of course, they've had a whole series of pretty nasty AI outbreaks, even influenza outbreaks, and those outbreaks taking place, particularly in the Midwest, yeah. where both these buildings and some of these operations have millions of birds on the one side. So in practice, the only viable option appears to be using this. Now I say it, they say, or at least the authorities and even the American Veterinary Medicine Association appears to be acceptable of that. Now, it's worth remembering that in England, I think only England, it was considered to be an option that might be used in extremis. Mm-hmm. And the circumstances when you might use it in extremis would be where the virus that birds were affected by was also highly infectious to people and with a high morbidity, a mortality to people. So the decision would be taken, if you like, on a harm benefit basis, that whilst there would be a lot of harm caused to these birds by using ventilation shutdown, the alternative would be to have a lot of people going into these sheds and exposing them and probably killing a lot of them with a form of influenza. So the decision would be taken that on balance, ventilation shutdown would be the appropriate way of dealing with it. Mm. I would be very pleased not to have been in that position to have to make that decision. But sometimes when you're against these really difficult situations, that's what you have to do. I mean, I, I don't pretend that I had something quite difficult to do that when I was deputy chief, but there were decisions you had to make where whatever you did, there would be a great deal of controversy because these are not yeah. easy issues to deal with. Yeah. And that's the problem when you have groups of animals, isn't it? You're looking after them. Perhaps already that's a difficult position to have them in. Getting well, I think any that the decision, the larger the scale of the operation, the more difficulty it is. Yeah. So, that's really quite clear to me is that the larger the operation, the greater the risk, business risk that somebody's taking, the yeah. greater the risk that because you've got so many more animals stamping the environment, that you're going to get a disease outbreak albeit subject to secure boundaries. And the more difficult it is to deal with the disease once it gets in. So I would take a TB and I don't want to go into an awful lot of detail about disease. But well, well, well in fact, that, that's good. I think we, we've both been quite keen to, to move on to TB and badges. So yeah. you've given us well, the we, 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 I was hoping but, we were quite close to the words. Brexit and, and badges, but if you want to talk about it, <laughs> Let's do we can do that. Get, get, carry on what you were saying. We're putting you in the hot seat now. Yes. Carry on what you were saying. 
Well, I think, I mean, you know, what was become, what became evident with dealing with TB, whether it's badges as a source or not, we can come back to that in a little while, if you like, is the bigger the herd, the greater risk they are of getting TB. Other things be equal in comparison with a small herd down the road. The mm -hmm. more difficult it is to clear out the, the infection from the herd, the longer yep. it stays under restrictions and the more difficult it is for government to solve the problem and the risk with very big herds puts the taxpayer at greater risk because the taxpayer is the one that is the insurer of last resort. So if you have to kill the entire herd because you can't get the last three or four reactors out of it because the test isn't sufficiently sensitive to find them, mm -hmm. as happened in the States when they were getting rid of the last big infected herds in California and Texas, they went in and killed 2,000 cattle rather than trying to faff around trying to get it all sorted out. And that happened in a number of huge herds in Texas and California. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have one at scale. No. We're getting there a few with a thousand and perhaps even 1500 now in England, but th th those numbers are going to go up. And so yes. disease becomes more and more difficult to deal with bigger operations. And of course, the environmental issue of, of what do you do with 2000 dead cows? You've got to get Absolutely. rid of them. Yeah. Where do yeah, they go? You know, well, when people have to them, dairy the ashes back. Yeah. When we yeah. were dealing with uh, foot and mouth disease in the 60s, you dug a little hole in the corner of the farm and put the dead cows in. And that was it. You know, it was easy or you burn. But, you know, yeah. you cannot burn 2,000 cows. You cannot bury 2,000 cows. They've got to be shipped away. So the costs go up exponentially. And the taxpayer just ends up getting a bigger, takes a bigger bow. And that's the thing. And that's a taxpayer largely made up of ethical people who may be vegetarians and vegans. Well... I took the view, and it proved wrong, but during the foot and mouth disease outbreak in 2001, I was down here in Somerset, so I spent a long time working on the outbreaks in Devon and uh, Somerset, and then I got dragged into headquarters and working on the sort of recovery stuff, and then I went on to do TB after the outbreak was uh, sorted, and all the discussion whilst the disease was raging, was, are we going to vaccinate? And the farmers are dead against it. And there are good reasons for that. The economic impact of this and getting out from under from it means that, if you like, you could say that the livestock industry could be blighted for five or 10 years, mm -hmm. in one way, in terms of exports, but also other things as well. But it became increasingly clear to me that when we were doing exercises, we used to do these exercises all the time was that continuing with a stamping out process, which might be the killing of another 10 million animals, either because they're diseased or because we're, we thought they're under threat of disease, would be untenable politically. And yeah. I think much more quickly, provided the circumstances were right towards vaccination in, in, in this country. And we're already talking about vaccinating a, against avian influenza, which for many years we weren't prepared to think about. So that's potentially on the cards as well. And if poultry farming becomes unsustainable because of the continuing threat of AI, then I think we'll end up using the vaccine. 
So circumstances change. Sure. And the circumstances change, of course, for badgers who once put their galoshes on and follow Molly out for a, a night's stroll and have a little wander past the little dairy farm and go home for supper. But now they've got a little bitty bundle with his rifle, haven't they? So yeah, yeah it's an I right slap bang in a killing zone where I live in, in rural Somerset. And, uh, yeah, the, I've been watching badgers the entire time I've lived down here. I have links with the local badger group and mm-hmm. I also quite closely involved in some survey work on the cranes on the Somerset levels. I've also recently been doing survey work on a patch of land where there are nesting cranes, sorry, nesting cranes, and they're just coming back, mm-hmm. not nesting now. And one of the things I noticed is that around where I live, which is about six miles from this reserve where the turtles and cranes are, there's still activity from badgers. Oh, yes. The tracks because they like to use the same track every night. They're nowhere near as worn as they were. So maybe there were six or eight walking down there before. Now there's one or two. But if I go down onto this reserve where the managers, the owners of this reserve have said, no badger killing. There's just as many tracks that are just as well worn, just as active as the other one. So one way or another, when this fighting ends, God knows when that will be, there will be a population of badgers that will be able to spread out and repopulate the county. Well, that's good to know because Britain's largest yes. predator would be shameful to go extinct. Well, the doubt about it, they have become, in some areas, locally extinct. The entire set would have been bit, bit, extirpated. But the village I live, there's still a fair number of them about. And I suspect there's quite a lot of sort of peri-urban village badges which are going to continue to be there for a long time. Mm. Is it, I'm going to put you on the spot here, is it working? Is it working? Now, I was asked sorry, this. Uh, that, I, I must just say, again, we have listeners yeah, all yeah. around the world, and so they may not know yeah. that badgers are at the moment being culled to try and reduce the putative spread of tuberculosis. I say putative yes. because it isn't okay. definitively proven that the badgers are the cause of spread of tuberculosis to cattle. Uh, well, they... I think we we did prove conclusively that they are a cause, but they contribute to the spread. Whether they are the main cause yep. is difficult. Of course, yep. you asked a question: Does it is it working? I did say right at the beginning. I spent a lot of time working on various different animal diseases, primarily foot and mouth disease and BSE. I spent BSE on BSE. Yep. I did you know? I did the public inquiry and all sorts of things on it, and. The difference between, on the one hand, foot and mouth disease of BSE is that when you initiated, or when we initiated the control program, and those were different, different, different diseases, yeah. you know, the appropriate understanding of the ecology of the disease allowed you to devise a, a strategy to, to, to control and ultimately eliminate it. Both of them. There was a precipitate, as a precipitate, we haven't got these epidemic curves, but the, when you see the epidemic curve, when the control measures came in for both diseases, it reaches a peak, the control measures come in, there's a lag, which is one or two incubation periods, and then it drops precipitately down to nearly zero and it trickles along for two or three years or months, depending on the type of disease you're dealing with, and then disappears, provided mm-hmm. you maintain that 
if you look at the epidemic but TB at the moment is not following that shape, despite the fact that we've been now killing badgers for 10 years, and we're mm-hmm. probably killing badgers over a larger area now than we ever have been in this country. Well, I don't know, perhaps forever. What you mentioned was that badgers are, and we accept that badgers contribute to the spread of the disease, the extent to which they do that, the portion of disease that's caused by them is unknown. And it's also worth remembering there's a lot of effort being expended on tackling disease in cattle. But it's worth also remembering that the objective by 2038 is for the England to have officially TB-free status. And officially TB-free status means that fewer than 0.1% of the herds, registered herds of cattle, have got infected cattle or yeah. they're under, not under restrictions for TB. So that's less than one in a thousand. Mm-hmm. So one in a thousand herds means that at the time, we probably ought to have fewer than 40 infected herds. And that has got to be maintained, I think it's about three or five years. So mm-hmm. by 2035, which is three years before the strategy comes to an end, we should be down to fewer than 40 herds infected. Approximately, that's all the way. 40 herds means that 99.9% of the other herds are meet the standard of where you could say they're officially TB-free. Now, mm-hmm. that is a high bar. It's mm-hmm. as close to eradication of the organism from the environment as you could get without saying you've done that. And given that you've got other hosts, mammalian hosts, which include bad deer and a few other species, the likelihood of being able to really say you've got that it is very low. So in order to get to that point, you if you were going to get to that point, recognizing you've got this long tail towards the end of mm-hmm. the epidemic, then you would expect to get a precipitate drop in the first four, five, or eight years of the campaign. And there isn't yes. Much. So I think you, I think the question was, is it working? Up to a point it is, but not fast. Yeah. And it, it seems I, like I, that model isn't working anyway. What about the oh, vaccinating then? Why not? Sorry, I'm really wanting more. What about, what yeah, about well, vaccinating? I, well, vaccinating both species is a really attractive approach and certainly politicians, the ones I have worked with and the members of the public think whenever you've got a disease, we must have a vaccine. Now, vaccines are the right sort of vaccine for the right sort of disease, the right sort of organism, a brilliant, you know, think about rabies, vaccines, smallpox, polio, even measles or mumps. Fantastic. You know, you've got this vaccine that provides with one or two doses, more or less lifetime immunity, stops transmission, and you can get eradication, you know, global eradication of smallpox on the back of it. And you can eliminate rabies from wildlife uh, using these vaccines. So there are some vaccines that are absolutely fantastic. But it's worth remembering that those really good vaccines are almost invariably virus vaccines. Yes. With Bacteria like bovine TB, or for that matter, human TB, the vaccines 
tend to be less effective and they generally don't give 100% uh, coverage. No vaccines give that, but they're much, much lower. So the thing that the concern I have about the vaccines, and I would emphasize, having been away for seven years, I don't know all of the detail about this and I haven't attempted to keep up with it. But the thing that I'm very conscious about is that if you think about a strategy that is striving to get eradication, which, as I say, is as near to elimination of the organism as possible, and you use a, va a vaccine, either on badgers or cattle or both, which will damp down infection, but not eliminate it, then as a tool to help you control the disease, I think it might be useful. Mm -hmm. As a tool to get you over that hurdle towards eradication, I think it's probably not very easy. And it's also worth remembering that when the last few communities of, I think in Ethiopia, where they were trying to get rid of the last few pockets of smallpox, they've been yeah. vaccinating for 20 years. And what they did at the end was stop because yes. they had to allow virus to express itself if it was still there. Yeah. And I think what, and go back to brucellosis, I was joined the government venue services at the end of the brucellosis campaign, which again was another bacteria rather than a virus. The, Disease was damped down in the very worst areas where brucellosis was rife by using vaccines. But mm -hmm. towards eradication, in order to find out whether organisms were still circulating and in order to credit the herds so that they could be demonstrably free of the organism, they stopped. So as counties got the prevalence came down as a result of vaccinating, ultimately what they said, okay, we've got it down to 2% of herds that are infected, mm -hmm. we're going to stop vaccinating now, go out and find the last infected animals and kill them in a credit herds. The problem about that with TB is that the test is difficult at finding the last infected animals, whatever yes. you do. But if you vaccinate them, it'll be more difficult to find. And in any case, as herds get bigger and bigger, it gets more and more difficult to find those last infected animals. So this is not easy. And mm. when news got down to it, got down to some about 1% prevalence in its herds, it re-timetabled its strategy to get another 20 years to get that last bit, that 1% mm. got rid of. Yes. So it's immense complex stuff. My concern is that we're burning cash. This is a hundred million pounds a year of taxpayers' money and Bear in mind that this disease, the reason why governments it, in this country and elsewhere went into trying to get on top of bovine TB was because of the public health risk. But if you treat the milk and you inspect the animals at the point of slaughter, the potential of the public has already been achieved. So it's the taxpayer funding a disease where the risk to the taxpayer is gone. A hundred million oh. pounds can be spent on an orphan run of healthcare, couldn't it? Well, if you really wanted to improve public health or the outcomes 
for young people, which is what I would like to see, then build two schools or a small hospital. Yes. Yeah. Well, you could have done two of those. You couldn't have the O2, could we? I don't think it's and probably not hundred million for two schools, but you know, you could have a several schools. And a, like, I think a hospitals, you could have a, a new school, a new hospital every two years. So what, and that what would be more that, the public. So what you're saying, Alec, is that uh, the persecution of a protected species, if it isn't a protective species yeah. because it's got a certificate for killing, is going to continue yeah. for uh, for the foreseeable future. Well, I, one of the one of my major criticisms, and I've laid out one or two of the things about the strategy, and, and you know. I think the government's trying hard. It is a really difficult thing. These things are difficult. The reason why governments end up dealing the private sector can't make money. If they found a solution that could make money out of it, they've done it in five decades. So government gets left with the hot potato. But I also look at it and think, well, when it comes to badges, you've got an exit strategy, which is we will declare freedom when we get to OTF at 99.9% of herds, what I've just described. But there doesn't seem to be an exit strategy for badgers. So my question is, if you're killing all the badgers in this county, Somerset, and killing probably 90% of the area yeah. of Somerset is given over to badger coming, I don't know how much of it is because it's all a secret. And that's yeah. another aspect of my, is that if you were going to, Start off killing badgers, and you have done, and you're doing it over this large area. And as George Eustace said, nobody wants to carry on killing badgers forever. What's the criterion you use to say we won't do it anymore? Yeah. Because you have to stop sometimes, and there's nothing in any of the documents that I've seen that will say we will stop when the disease in cattle gets to X or Y or Z. Because well, there's or, nothing in, and I don't or, think they've got an idea. Been shown, or when it's been shown that it won't get to, she such. So there's, well, no, I think, they've got, yeah. So you either have an exit strategy for failure or an exit strategy for success. And yes. there is none. There is none. There's, ne there's neither of those. I think we might mention when is a when is a species protected when it isn't protected. But were you thinking of pheasants there, Mike? Uh, well, I, I was thinking Schrodinger's pheasant. I don't know if if you come across Schrodinger's pheasant, Alec. Oh, yeah. Well, I've worked with Wild Justice a bit and provided them with a bit of stuff on, on, on badger killing, actually. But I got to know a couple of people in Wild Justice quite well. And I'm uncomfortable about sort of most aspects of wildlife management in this country because, for the most part, it involves three steps, which I can always articulate a bit later on when we come to the 62nd CPT. Oh, and but, I'll, I'll tell you what then. <laughs> you finish what, what you're doing say now, and then we'll look at your 62nd CPD as you've okay. come across it. All right. We can do that. Well, I, I mentioned at the beginning that there were simply like these different buckets, diff, different groups of animals, different species, mm. and we treat them very differently. My yep. argument about wildlife is that it's and we need to set that and do something more about that. And when it comes to pheasants, I said I don't eat game birds. I do eat a bit of venison. I'll explain the difference about that if you like. But when it comes to pheasants, what they do to the birds, what they do to the wildlife to protect the birds, 
and the fact the shooters don't proportion are incompetent and there's a gross surplus which gets chucked in a hedge when they don't think they need them and also because they're silly. Buzzards are amongst one of my favorite birds of prey. I think the whole thing's horrible. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. So in that case then, right, you've mentioned it. You've keyed this up. You've mentioned yeah, yeah. a famous feature, 60-second CPD. And yes. And you can time it. Oh, yeah. I'm going I'm to time, time you. Oh, yes. I'm going to time you because you've also talked here about Schrodinger's pheasant. You've talked about the inhumane treatment of our British wildlife. So what's your chosen subject, I ask, as if I don't already know? It's wildlife management in the UK. Wildlife management, okay. Okay, right. so in that case then, Alex Simmons, 60-second CPD on wildlife management in the UK, starting now. Da. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about our wildlife management in the UK. In general, there are three steps that are applied uh, when uh, people are managing wildlife in the UK. First of all, find a problem. Second identify a scapegoat and third go out and kill it now basic laws mean that it's not a complete free-for-all but it's undeniably a lightly uh, regulated area and there are none of the controls that apply to say for example the slaughter of animals for human consumption or the euthanasia of pets or research animals wildlife may be trapped snared and poisoned and little of the equipment is tested and there are no competencies except in a very small number of cases and almost no scrutiny and no inspection by the authorities. Most methods are demonstrably inhumane and everything from mole traps to snares to glue boards to laughing traps are used. So it is time for root and branch review and it's time for the vending professor to step up and get involved. Well, and there we go. So that's a clarion call to the veterinary industry, wherever you are in that veterinary industry, to stand up and be counted and make your voice heard. Absolutely. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back to, to your book here, where you talk about not just a dichotomy, but a trichotomy of rooms of care in the UK. So we have, oh, yeah. we have pet rats mm -hmm. and we have lab rats yes. and mm -hmm. we have Yes. These nasty rats must clearly be a totally different species that, that, that live in my in our, in loft uh, at home. It is your loft at home with it. They're pests. Yeah. They're not at all like bloody rats that we would strew. And yet, yet clearly, same animal. And we treat them in three very different ways. And I've asked that question. I've put it out there. And we're not going to have time to go into it in huge amounts of detail. But do you have just... A, a couple of sound bites to say to that at all. Well, it, or the, the, other than the, buy my book and read about it. The phrase that I use in the book is a rat is a rat is a rat. And yes. that was given to me by a colleague of mine, Mark Jones, who's the veterinarian and policy lead in Born Free Foundation. Mm. And uh, worked Mark quite a lot because he and I have got this concerns about the badge of colour and a number of other things. And I've expanded on that sort of idea that if you take a variety of different circumstances which you find a rat, and as you mentioned, laboratory animals, pet rats, and what rats in the wild, the degree of protection that's afforded them is a completely different set of regulations. You've got the Animal Welfare Act for a, a pet rat, 
You've got the Animal Scientific Procedures Act for the laboratory rat mm -hmm. and well, wild wildlife, wild rats, just about damn all. And these are all sentient animals with the same nervous system and the same capacity to suffer, and we treat them entirely differently. But I'm not naive. There are times, will, and always going to be many times, when we have to intervene against the wild rat, but recognizing that the wild rat is the methods of killing wild rats. And I did some work with some people from Oxford and also with U4 Money. We published the data a little while ago. You look at blue traps, spring traps, live traps, and killing and, and poisons. Um, and poisons. All yeah. of them are demonstrably made. In fact, the poisons that we use, I find it extraordinary. The work that's going on to try and develop new generation, because we're now onto the second generation of anticoagulant rodenticides, the criteria that these guys are using, looking at new molecules that might be used for this, animal welfare is sort of number 10. All the other ones are about safety and longevity yes. and abuse and and a variety, which are not unreasonable, but fundamentally, if you go out to, to put that right at the bottom, then what you're really doing is reinforcing what we've been doing for decades, which is sort of saying, well, these animals don't really matter. Absolutely. Argument, and, and they've only put them on the bottom because they had to put them somewhere. Well, they? Well, I think so. They, I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to get people to get the impression that I'm bleeding heart about this, but yeah. It's illogical. It's illogical. It's untenable, unsustainable, and it's wrong that the vending profession looks the other way. Now, I've just had an article in the vending record about this very subject that's come out where I've set out the argument I put out in the CPD a little bit in a little bit more detail. But they only gave me a hundred words. But but it, again, it, it sort of saying, well, if we think it's important and fair play to the BVA. They were campaigning hard for glue traps to go. And I think ultimately they are going to go, or they made very limited circumstances, but they're going to disappear, which is very good news. Yes. But to find a better way of dealing with this. Now, if you think about it, a bit like animal disease, the best way of tackling animal disease is to prevent it in the first place, either by vaccinations or securing your boundaries or some other means of preventing it happening rather than trying to treat it and cure the animal. The same way when it comes to rats getting into buildings, make the buildings more secure. And I wonder if 10% of the money that was spent on developing new, developing new oils was spent on securing buildings, you might actually have to kill a lot fewer. I spent, I think it must have been probably 50 quid on various traps. Yep. And in the yes. end, with a little bit of extra due diligence, I found yeah. that five pounds worth of bricks and mortar actually closed the hole that the builders had left underneath yes. the deck that the buggers were coming in on. So, yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. It's stuff. a difficult one. I yeah. Brilliant. Stuff. I live in a thatched house and I can't keep mice out of my lot. So right. I have no. to use cats. And I, it distresses me, but I, very careful about the type of traps I buy. I use it for a minimum amount of period and I check them regularly. But if I could possibly find a way of keeping them out, I would do. Mm. Yeah. 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 And there has to ultimately be a, 
a humane way of doing it. Something that's fair for... Well, I, I think so. I, 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 get it. I go into the book about the dilemmas there are when it comes to conservation, because these same substances are being used on islands to eradicate mice and rats that are eating all the seabirds. And that distresses me. And the RSPB agonizes over this. But ultimately, it's a harm-benefit analysis. If you do nothing, the seabirds will eventually disappear altogether, mm -hmm. and some of them might become extinct. Yes. The mice ought not to be there in the first place. Ideally, what you want to be able to do is find some way of bringing the population down to a very low level through other means, and ideally maybe genetic, genetic modification of the mice or something like that, so they don't breed, and then the last few dozen could be killed with traps or poisons. But there's still this harm-benefit analysis that needs to be applied and also research into finding better ways of doing it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm sure we'll have that at some stage. Okay, I, I okay. think I'm stuttering now because I know that Mike's going to put a word in. So Mike, do say what you want to say first. Okay. Because I think it's going to lean on Mike. Yeah, I think it probably will because, you know, we've talked about humane euthanasia or humane killing or eradication and disease control the politics and the ethics and the morals and all of this. But our regular listeners, of course, Alec, like us to ask the really difficult questions. So I'm going to ask you a question. I am going to ask yeah. you a question. I don't know and we normally can... ask this at the beginning. We so, do. You know, I apologize. Yeah. So, because we, so our... it, is, it is one that's going to make you think a little bit. Yeah. This okay. is going to make you think and it's going to challenge you. But our listeners do want this difficult question asking, I know, because we get the feedback. So, Alec Timmons, what's your favorite bread? Oh, definitely sourdough. Okay. We're, we're seeing a pattern for you here, aren't we? It's how they yeah. go, go, yeah. with that. go with that. Yeah. 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 Well, well, thanks. 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 well, thank you so for explaining that. Well, I was going to say, uh, I thought he waffled. I I was, I was, I was determined I wasn't going to hesitate. You, you, and you did pretty good. Straight in. You face the problem and the win for it. Straight in there. Uh, well, I'm I, going to ask I another difficult question now then. I'm going to ask it of Julian. Julian, we've had a cracking yes. conversation tonight. We've learned it's been amazing. Lot. And it's one that I wish would never end because there's just so That's much more. I was going to say, and we've had read, a really read the book. good, read the book. Really, really good 60 second CPD. Julian. Have you got a CPD certificate? You know, by complete coincidence, I have. Let's have a look, so, shall we? Well, here we go. It says certificate of choosing your level of exploitation. Oh, right. And I think that, that's exactly. really, it's all encapsulated in, in, in Alex's book. So to, to choose your level of exploitation, well, here we go. Here's cows. Here is yes. cows. Being kept in far from good conditions. This was uh, all blush. This is a farm quite close to me. Not a blade of grass to be seen. And as a reminder, actually, cows have been used for many centuries. Here's a picture of, of a bull on a statue, a pre-BC statue. We've been keeping animals ever since we started farming them in less than yeah. perfect conditions for many thousands of years. And that's why it's difficult to get into a different mindset about it. it here's a wild boar pig cross. And we have got a few of those now in the local area. I haven't seen any, but we have sightings of them. Yeah, you've got it's a lot up in, in the Forest of Dean. And I've been reviewing a book that somebody's written about them that's going to be published next year, which is nice. 
Excellent. Well, here's a sheep. This is a Herdwick sheep. Yep, it is, uh, yes. And again, we have so many breeds of sheep that have been bred for particular areas, for particular wolves, for particular meat types and productions. But by and large, due to fads, he used to be, when, when I was like animal husbandry at, at university, the lecturer said, well, it's the housewife that makes the decision about the ultimate type of sheep that's produced. I think things have changed now, haven't they? But you know, so many different types of, of sheep, all for, for various reasons, kept in habitats which it was believed suited them, but now we know perhaps didn't. Now, I don't know if it's coming up okay, but there's, there's a baby lobster in, oh. in an oyster. So yeah, I opened this oyster, oyster, found a little baby lobster in there. I haven't got a problem with eating oysters. I do have a problem with eating lobsters. And so I was a little bit put out by the poor little baby lobster in this oyster I'd opened up. Oh, you um, see, that's interesting. I found it. The very next day, I, I had a lovely seafood platter with, with a may gray and fish and, and a spider crab. And again, and I know you mentioned in your book that you don't eat crab or lobster anymore. And I, I took that picture before I really questioned whether I should be eating lobster. Well, I would eat lobster if I was satisfied it had been humanely killed, but yeah. there's no yeah. way. That's exactly the time. Yeah. Yeah. If and they're going to piss it before they cook crab. it, then I've got no problem. Yeah. I eat crab and I eat lobster at home where I've killed them. I've got them fresh and yeah. killed them. But if I'm not sure it's being done properly, yeah. then I don't have the... However, I have no problem at all with eating live sea urchins on the beach in Greece. Oh, is that what it is? I was wondering what that... I've never eaten That doesn't appeal to you. Know, it's my absolute favourite food, the corals or rones from sea urchins. But yet, you know, they are alive. The little spines will move. Yes. They're, they're under proper control. I'm blindsided to it. I haven't even thought of the ethics of eating it. I just love them so much I eat them. And I think your book has helped me just to reappraise that. I may still go ahead and eat them because they are my favourite food. And I know full well that, that if I don't go ahead and eat them, then they're squashed by all the tourists and all the locals because they're a pest. So it's a difficult one, isn't it? What do we do? I think so. And I think many ethicists or even biologists would probably say that a sea urchin is not sentient. But it's all of these things are contentious. And I did read somewhere, reading a book by a woman called Martha Nussbaum, Justice Proud. And I recommend it if you get the opportunity. It's much more scholarly than mine. Well, that... well, she talks precisely about sea urchins and other animals moving away from noxious stimuli. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, mm. But, it, it, you know, there's a difference between an animal that's capable of moving for a noxious stimuli and an animal that will suffer if it's exposed to noxious stimuli from which it can't get away. That's where the difficulty comes in. And that's where many people would say, well, because we don't know, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And that was when it becomes very difficult. Mm, it and is. I think at the moment, because we don't know, I'm going to carry on eating them. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, and I'm not sure I've got a problem with that. It's just one of these things that becomes very difficult to conclude. And there may never be a conclusion. And again, you know, Marion Dawkins says, we could spend another five decades trying to work out whether animals are have consciousness or not. What we really need to be doing is working out what their wants and needs are. And it's a quite yes. a good argument. It is. Right? It is. 
we could at this stage go and talk about the ethics of insect farming. However, yeah. maybe we'll talk about that next time we have you on. Sounds out of my well, well, there we go. We'll have to we'll have to challenge you on that one then, because we've been doing a lot of work on insects <laughs> over the years on this, Alec. But okay, so you've you have covered so much information, Alec, this evening, and we really appreciate that. Can you tie that together with a reflection question, as if we haven't already put a lot of stuff out there for people to reflect yeah. on, that which I'm sure people will do, because it's been a it's been a challenging evening in the most appropriate ways. Do you have a reflection question for our audience? Uh, my, my wish would be that veterinarians think in the round about the animals. Not only they are responsible for their plants are giving them responsibility, but the animals for which they don't have any direct responsibility and think whether or not it is appropriate not to take any consideration about that. So this is, I mean, it's a fundamental part of the book. So think about, or would you please start thinking about whether this is something that you should deal with? And uh, I mean, I've had the luxury over the last few years not having to work for a living, so I've had the opportunity to think about it. Mm -hmm. And I, there are a lot of younger vets that might not have an opportunity to think about this. But going back to the rat, the laboratory rat, or for that matter, more likely the wild rat or the stoat or the rabbit run over the road <laughs> or the badger, you may not as a veterinarian have any direct responsibility for that. But it's worth thinking about that animal is likely to be suffering because some of the decisions that you as a member of society or even indirectly as a member of the profession might have had a bit of influence over. Can you extend, would you extend that to the general public? Because not all of our listeners are veterinarians. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, I would. Oh, I think I should think about these things. Mm -hmm. I, I think we'd also say that people ought to think about the scale of things. One thing they've tried to do is but that the scale of what we do and what we accept and the way in which livestock farming or for that matter, even game shooting or the use of animals in research, the scale of it is almost impossible to conceive of and the bigger it gets the more impersonal it gets and therefore the less likely you are to worry about the individual but i still think we should worry about the individual despite the size of their operation okay that's absolutely brilliant alec and i think it's i could talk i know that julian can as well i'll speak for both of us we could talk to you and with you for hours and hours and we're really be good. We're really good. I look forward to speaking to you again or meeting with you and sharing a pint. That would be absolutely fantastic at some point. Yeah, that's a good idea. I All it beholds me to do is to say, Alex Simmons, thank you so much for challenging us with okay. your thoughts. And thank you so much for producing the book, Treated Like Animals, Improving the Lives, the Creatures We Own, Eat and Use because it's a worthy tome, whether you're a veterinarian, a veterinarian, or not even involved in veterinary science, there's something in that book for you, because we are all living one life on one planet, and we are all beholden to each other, whether we want to accept that responsibility or not, it is there. So on that note, Alex Simmons, thank you very much indeed. I'll raise me mug, and may your dog go with you. May your dog go yeah. with you. May your dog Thank go you with you, much. Alex. Thank you very much indeed. Well, and cut. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wait, that was, Alec, that was fantastic.